uh, this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at the emphasis he's going to be starting in Hebrews chapter 2 and continuing on really through different sections of Hebrew right to the end, and that's the suffering of the incarnate Son, how important that was for our eternal salvation. You cannot bypass that. You cannot put that down. You cannot lighten that truth. You have to exalt it to where it it should be because it is so vital and important to this so great salvation that I've been talking about from verse number 3 of chapter 2, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So far, Scripture spoke of the excelling greatness of God's Son that Christ inherited a more excellent name than the angels. Remember, there's been a contrast between the angels and Christ. That Jesus Christ receives their worship He uses them as messengers and servants. And so Jesus is anointed above all others in Scripture. He is God the Creator. He is God the Eternal. He is God the Unchangeable. He has the highest place in His universe in which He created. And that was all given to inform the readers of Hebrews, these Jewish believers that Christ, the object of God's final revelation to humanity, is vastly superior than all spiritual angelic beings and all others, whoever wants to put anything else in there, he's above all that also. So last time, the author of Hebrews paused to interject a very, very strong warning. He understood that his readers were troubled by possible ostracism and suffering and even loss of their own life, he sensed that his readers were discouraged and were being tempted to be pulled back from their commitment to Christ. So he wanted to give them an exhortation. He wanted to give them, in a sense, a spiritual kick in the pants and warn them about something to reclaim their attention. And so he says this to them, listen, if you neglect the only great means of salvation that God has given in His Son, how then will you escape God's wrath? The only answer to that question is, there is no escape. If you neglect the Son, if you neglect God's highest revelation to us, there is no escape. You will stand alone to face the justice of God. That is a horrible thought. That is a frightening thought. That should uh, send fear into our bones. It should cause us to tremble. That's why it's, it's the terror of the Lord that we want to understand. We want to persuade men to come. And the love of Christ constrains us to tell men why to be rescued from the wrath of God if they don't believe in Jesus Christ. They will face God's standard of justice alone. 
So this morning we move into a new section that will be followed by its own warning and exhortation, a section that will stress the incarnate Son's suffering. That is, Christ's suffering becomes a key factor concerning God's plan about how sinners are rescued from God's own justice. And he begins to lay it out, beginning in verse number 5 of chapter 2 on, I'll be probably going to verse number 10. I want you to see, though, what's going on here. The first thing he, he brings out is this, the very uniqueness and humility of human beings, and may I say it this way, redeemed human beings. Look what he says in verse number 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. Now, in this passage of Scripture, he is saying here, listen, the world to come also can mean the future inhabited earth. That's the literal rendering, actually, to it. Like in Hebrews 6, uh, chapter 6 and verse 5, if you want to turn over there very quickly, it says, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So he is talking about here that, Listen, he did not subject to angels uh, the world to come. So what did he do? Well, this is another way of also saying that it's a Jewish way of saying, pointing to the state of things under Messiah, the new order of things that is coming. He is saying here, listen, redeem human beings are to inherit the world to come and its full salvation. It's like, He's referring back to possibly the new heaven and new earth, uh, where it says in Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any seed. So there will be an amazing transition that will take place, that the Lord will get rid of the old and replace it with the new. The old heavens and the earth will be completely destroyed, and there, in their place, God will, of course, make a new heaven and new earth. Remember, this is not a new promise. It's a very old promise from the Old Testament. The Apostle Peter brings it up where he says this, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So that's an old promise from the Old Testament where he is actually bringing that up from a period of God's program in Isaiah chapter 65, where he tells the people, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. That in that state that is coming, in that new world to come, as it says in Hebrews right here, chapter 2, verse number 5, we're not going to remember what was in the past. That seems to be the case there. It's not going to even come to our mind. Once that happens, everything in the past is gone. History's done. And it looks like there it's even done in our memory. We're not going to be loathing over in our minds the things that have gone by. We're going to have a whole brand new set of things. And probably being in the presence of God, our minds are going to be so occupied with who He is what he's done, and the glory of God, and to be able to bask in that for all eternity, it's going to take eternity. Uh, and, of course, eternity doesn't have an end. 
So it's going to be a long time, and we're going, to have, we're going to have a good time there. And he's saying here, listen, there's a uniqueness about human beings, especially redeemed human beings, that the angels don't have. Angels do not hold first place in the world to come. God has determined man to have first place in the order of things to come. That's an amazing thought. He wants to bring that before us. He wants us to think about that. A second thing he tells us from really Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 is that redeemed human beings are joint heirs together with the supreme heir, Jesus Christ, where it says in verse 2 of chapter 1 of Hebrews, in these last days has spoken in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. So here, a second thought is that because the Son is the inheritor of all things, then because we are in Christ, for those who are redeemed in Christ, then we become joint heirs with Christ, that the way Christ the Son came to his inheritance is because the Father placed him there, and the very word, Heir means to carry, it really carries several thoughts with it. Number one, that an heir is a lord of all he inherits. He is over all of it. And the second thing is that he takes full possession of what he inherits. So the reminder to us who are true children of God, our fellow heirs, we are fellow heirs with Christ like Romans chapter 8 and verse number 16 tells us. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so we may also be glorified with Him. Now, last time I read that, I didn't stress the last part of that passage of Scripture. It does say there that if indeed we suffer with Him, that suffering becomes on this side of eternity, in this heavens and earth, suffering is part of it because sin came in and the curse came in. We all, to some extent, endure some kind of affliction, some kind of suffering while we're on this side. And if Christ suffered, our master suffered, then who are we to somehow bypass suffering? Suffering teaches us Something It teaches us about our weakness, about how vulnerable we are. It teaches us about how the curse of sin has wrecked everything in our life. It brings things to utter destruction. So suffering is definitely going to be part of this time in which we live on this earth. We can't get away from it. Even those who are in Christ, who are redeemed, who know the Lord, they can't get away from suffering. We are going to suffer for the Lord even, when we become believers. But it also says that we suffer so that we may be glorified with him. So we enter into the sufferings of Jesus Christ uh, as believers. Now, there's two important observations that come out of verse number 5 of Hebrews chapter 2. The first one is this. Angels are not joint heirs with the supreme heir, Jesus Christ. And a second thing is that angels will not sit on 
the throne with Jesus and reign with Jesus. I like that passage of Scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, where it says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So someday, in this new world order that God's going to make, where there will be no curse, there will be no sin, there will be none of the things in which we endure here as far as suffering, we will reign with Christ in that time of of uh, I just, in that time, I was going to say history, but I don't know if you can call that history. Uh, so, see, the, the question that comes up in this passage of Scripture is this. If we think about angels, angels really, the reason why I believe he's using angels here is because angels are very high created order of beings. Matter of fact, there is no one higher than angels beside God in, in the sense of looking at Scripture. So why, if Jesus was going to be associated with his creatures, wouldn't it be logical that he should associate with the most magnificent, superior beings like angels? I mean, angels are endowed with higher intelligence. They're endowed with power. They're endowed, according to Scripture, with beauty. They are less limited than we are. Angels have the ability to put on and put off material matter. They, 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 angels can transport themselves really wherever and whenever they please. Angels are not bound by decaying body like we have. They don't die, angels. Also, angels are without sexual designation. They're a fixed number of beings They're magnificent creatures of God. When you look in Scripture, you say, wow. Many times men came into the presence of angels, they bowed down because of the awesome presence. Many times things were transformed right before people when angels showed up. But on the other hand, if you think about human beings for a second, we're poor, We're weak. We're prone to wander. We're hemmed in by time and space. We have an animal-like sexuality. We have, in a sense, gross bodies. What I mean by that is all kinds of fumes come out of these bodies. All kinds of odors. We have all kinds of issues connected with our body. And to boot, we get old and we die. You would think that if there is a God that is supremely exalted, as the scriptures have been describing him, that he couldn't possibly be bothered with such little creatures as us. Yet, and this is the great thing, the point being made in our text this morning is that the Son did not associate himself with angels. He associated himself with the seed of Abraham by taking on himself 
a not an angelic nature, a human nature like Abraham's seed. Look at chapter 2, look at verse 16 where it says, For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. To me that is a thrilling thought that God could have chosen angels, but in the scheme of things, He chose humanity. He chose man. That means that a third thing would be that redeemed human beings have a special rank in God's order of things. And he says that in verse number 7. Or verse number 6, he says this. But one has testified somewhere, and of course the one who has testified somewhere is in the Psalms, Chapter 8, he's really quoting from, from, remember, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, all right? And so he's quoting from there, and look what he says in verse number 2, or excuse me, verse number 6. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that thou remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little lower You had made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. Now, this is what he begins to say here in Scripture. He is using, he is saying here, listen, according to this passage of Scripture, God is very interested in mankind and remembers mankind and looks in upon him to supply all his needs. Doesn't he do that? Doesn't it tell us in the Word of God, like in a passage in Acts chapter 14, verse 17, where he says, and yet he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness that God really reaches out and takes care of and remembers and looks in on his creation of humanity. That's what he does. That's who he is. So see, compared to angels, mankind is only a little lower in degree, in degree, at least in degrees, all right? Just for a little while. We're lower than the angels while we're on this earth. We're lower because of, of who we are, because of the limitations that we do have, because of the weaknesses that we have, because sin has come in. So this says something I think very important for our day, especially to people who have reduced mankind to just a mankind to be just a brute creature like the lower creation of animals. Who people finally say, you know, men when we die, we die just like common animals. Well. No, the creature called man belongs to the same class as angels. Both having an immortal spirit. We have a spirit that created in the image of God does not die. They also have that. The only problem with us and them is they weren't created in the image of God. We were. So God is in a sense redeeming his own fallen image that sin came in and shattered he's rescuing that for his own good and his own glory also 
Both of us have personality. Both of us have ability to reason. We have will that have been given by God that makes us different from every other creature. I mean, let's face it. If you've got to put man in a category, it's got to be in the category of angels. Angels do not hold first place in the world to come. And remember, the great difference between man, that man, not angels, have been created in the image of day, the image of God. Angels are not heirs of salvation. Human beings hold first place in Christ's future order of things. So, take your Bibles for a moment and turn to Psalm chapter 8, keeping your hand right there, because this is what he's actually quoting from Psalm chapter 8. I want to read it from the Hebrew Bible. And look at verse number 5. Psalm chapter 8, verse number 5. Where it says, You have made him a little lower than, what does it say in your translation? God, right? Well, that's not a good translation. In the Septuagint, it doesn't say God. It says what? It says angels. All right, now that's, That is, and if you read the context, look look what it says, because this is where he's quoting. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, it says in the Hebrew Bible. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the path of the sea O lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth see angels would fit perfectly in there because he's talking about created things so the septuagint reads this thou madest him a little less than angels thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and thou hast set him over the works of the hands thou hast put all things under his feet sheep and all oxen, yea, the cattle of the field, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, the creatures passing through the paths of the sea. So in other words, God has given authority to humanity over created things. Has he not? Doesn't it say that back in Genesis? That's what God did. He gave man authority over created things on this earth. That's what he gave man authority to do. And as our passage says in Hebrews chapter uh, two, back to Hebrews, in verse number 7, where he, he tells us this, you have made him a little lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, that God ranks mankind above the angels and crowns them with glory and honor and gives them a high place over his creation. God did subject all things beneath the feet of man. That's what it says in verse 8. He says it very emphatically. He says, look, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, 
let's face it for a minute. Let's think about that for a minute. Has God indeed put all things under man's authority, under their feet, where they have authority over all things? I think we would have a hard time really saying that, yeah, he does give us authority over some things, but it doesn't seem we have authority over everything. There seems to be a little bit of a problem there, right? Well, look what the text says. See, what we do not see is this. In verse number 8, the second part of verse number 8, it says, For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now, look what it says, Now we do not yet see all things subject to him. He's even interjecting the problem that we have, is that we have a real problem because we don't see man being in subjection to everything. We do not see the earth subject to man in every area. We do not see, as of yet, the future earth subject to man. We don't see that. See, we, there are some things we don't see yet. And the reason why we don't, the reason why we do not see everything subject to Christ and to mankind is that in our present sinful state, this subjection of all things has not been realized yet in its totality. It can't. Even though God's given it over to us, there's been a problem. Sin's come into the world. It's twisted everything. It's confused everything. It's put some things on hold. And so therefore, it's this problem of sin that has to be dealt with. So men as originally created by God, can be in subjection to all things. Can be the inheritor and heir with Christ in all things. We don't have that right now, though. We have it by faith, and that's why we, when we proceed into Hebrews, we're going to see this vast chapter 11 about faith. Why? Because we see it by faith. We hold on to it by faith, but we don't see it with our eyes. We don't see it actually happening yet. And the reason why is because sin has come into the world and so this subjection of all things to man is not yet realized. So that's what the the author of Hebrews wants us to see. And then he makes a shift. He says, okay, this is what you don't see, but this is what you do see. And this is what I want you to see. Look what he says in verse number 9. But we do see him who was made a little lower, made a little, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So this is what he wants us to see. That, listen, the reason why things aren't in subjection, the reason why we don't see our complete inheritance yet, the reason why that we don't see man in this kind of authority and Christ in this kind of authority as being crowned and having glory and honor is because there has to, something has to happen. What has to happen? Christ has to come into the world and he has to suffer. Because suffering unto death becomes the key. It becomes the key. So it brings us to the reason God had to become a man. 
that Jesus had to be made even a little lower than the angels in this sense. That he suffered a particular kind of suffering. Angels don't have to do that. That he, he died a particular kind of death. Angels could have never done that. He could never have picked anyone else. Jesus then becomes our high priest. Someone who is the mediator between man and God. Someone who goes into the presence of God with an offering. So all who believe in him can be forgiven and saved and have their sins atoned for, right? That's what he's getting at here. So Jesus, as a high priest, fully participates in humanity, the humanity of all men, that Jesus enters into the realm of humanity from cradle to the grave. He experiences everything we do as humans. In fact, we're going to get into a large section about being tempted. Jesus was tempted in all points as we are. And believe me, are we tempted? Do we experience that as human beings? Yes, we do. We experience the force of temptation. And that temptation sometimes pulls us into some very gross and deep sin. But this is what Jesus had to do. He had to enter into humanity. He had to die. Why? So all these things we've been talking about can be true, can happen, can come to fruition, can actually come to the place where we see them. We experience them. We enter into them. So this brings us to really to uh, verse number 9. The uniqueness and humility and necessity of Christ's death. That Jesus' death had a particular purpose to it. For instance, if you look at verse number 9, look at the first part of verse number 9. Here's the purpose. So that... By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. All right, now, this passage is not saying that Jesus died for everyone. The word taste indicates Jesus experienced death. Furthermore, he experienced death in its undiluted bitterness, he encountered everything we would have experienced had we paid our own penalty, including his agonizing separation from the Father, remember, on the cross. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus pleaded with the Father to rescue him from death. What was that? That was, an, that was a temptation. For Christ to want to bypass the cross. That's why he cries out to the Father. And this is what he says in Matthew 26. He said to to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me to his disciples. He said that. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and praying, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup. Pass from me. And then he said this. He went from a passive obedience to an active obedience where he says, yet not my will. But what? But as you will. So see, we see the struggle in Christ's humanity 
to want to avoid suffering because he knew the weight of what was going to happen on the cross. So see, when the Bible says that Jesus tasted death for everyone, Jesus is saying that Jesus did not merely sip the cup of death, but he fully drained the cup of death. That he fully underwent all the bitter dregs of death on the cross that we could ever imagine. And matter of fact, we can't imagine. Because what Christ suffered there on the cross for humanity, no one has suffered to that point. So what does Jesus do? Jesus accomplishes everything needed to complete and finish salvation. Now, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because his suffering, because of his, his suffering and death had, a, like I said, a particular character to it. Like no other death, it had a design to it. It has a, had a purpose to it. It was all ordered by God. There was no mistake in Jesus dying. There was no mistake in Jesus becoming a man. And the first thing we see is that by this design, Jesus' death was sacrificial. In the exercise of his office, the high priest in the Old Testament, his function was to offer sacrifices. But Jesus himself is the sacrifice. He is at the same time the sacrificer and the sacrificed. That makes him completely different than the Old Testament high priest. In fact, in Hebrews it calls Jesus the great high priest. He, he brings Jesus to the superlative degree of what a priest does in interceding and being the mediator between man and God. And Jesus, what he does is he offers up himself. That this act alone distinguishes Jesus from all other high priests, that Jesus becomes the self-sacrificed. It is the idea that the very self-sacrifice of Christ manifests his high priestly majesty. If you look at, even right there in Hebrews chapter, he's going to get into this a lot more, but look at, look at over to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. Look what it says there in your Bibles. In verse 27 of chapter 7, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices? First for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Jesus didn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. Why? He was sinless. But the high priest had, an offer, had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin first. And then notice the last part of verse 27. Because, he di- because this he did once for all to offer up himself. So Jesus becomes the sacrificial lamb in behalf of sinful humanity. A second thing that his death was unique in was in that it was propitiatory. Now, if you look in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse number 17, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest in pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. I think we ought to know the definition of that word. 
It's in Scripture, and it becomes a very important uh, word because it's describing to us the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. To be a propitiatory sacrifice, propitiation is something done in view to God. It's an offering. An offering is made to God. And the operative word is, it's an offering that is made to God that satisfies God's demands. It satisfies God's law. It satisfies God's justice. That when Christ gives himself as a propitiatory sacrifice, he satisfies what God requires. Because God requires the death penalty for sin. His justice demands that life be poured out. That's what it demands. And you know, when we go back to Isaiah 53, that great passage of Scripture about the death of Christ, there's one verse that talks about the satisfaction that the offering was before God, where he says in Isaiah 53:11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by His knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. See, that means God's wrath and justice toward me are satisfied for all those and for all those who put their faith in Christ. That Jesus, the high priest, Christ is more than another high priest. He's the great high priest. That Christ did not satisfy the demands of God for himself, but he made, but for actually for me, for, for, for you, taking upon himself my sin, taking upon himself my guilt. That is what's, that's really what the gospel is all about. So when we think about propitiation, we're thinking about something that is done in view to God. That this is what Christ does. He satisfies the full penalty of the law for me before the Father. It's done. It's finished, right? In the court of law, it's done. That person is not guilty anymore. Why? Because the person, Jesus Christ, took his guilt, satisfied and paid the justice that was due this righteous and just God. But Jesus' sacrifice in tasting death was also expiatory. Expiation is something that is done in view to me. It's done in view to you. It is done in view to the believer. The expiation of my sin. In other words, my sin is removed from me. The ex means to exit. My sin exits me. Where does it go? My sin exits me and goes to the cross. And the righteousness of Christ is applied to my account and so now god puts righteousness on my account and all my sin and all its guilt and everything i've ever done in thought word and deed is transferred to the cross it exits me in other words my sin is removed from me your sin is removed from you it exits you and you can insert your name if you want to i want to See, my sin is placed upon Jesus. That's expiation. It's, due in view, it's, due, it's done in view to me. That my sin is removed from me. 
and the punishment is removed from me, and it's given to Jesus. See, what Jesus offers to God, what Jesus offers to God, he does for us. He doesn't do it for himself. He didn't have to do it for himself. But unless this is done for you, you can't be saved. No one could be saved. No high priest is able to accomplish this. Do you know expiation has been taught a long time ago in the Old Testament? I want you to take your Bibles real quick and turn to Leviticus chapter 16. I want you to see something. Because God wanted his own people, Israel, to get this in their mind. That even though the high priest could only do it year after year and offer sacrifice after sacrifice where Jesus did it once. It's the Old Testament picture of the scapegoat. Which was part of the sin offering on the Day of Atonement. If you look at Leviticus chapter 16 uh, in verse number 5. Just follow with me and look what it says there. It says in verse 5, he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Verse 6 of Leviticus 16. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for, look what it says, for himself. Here's the high priest offering an offering for himself, right? And then it says this, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. Verse 7 He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Verse 8, Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot of the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. Verse 10, but the goat on which the lot fell for the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it And then notice what it says, to send it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Here it is, expiation, to send away, to exit, to drive it far away. And then look at verse number 21 of the same chapter of Leviticus. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins, and he shall lay them on the head of the goat, and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. And verse 22, the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. There is the picture of the sins being transferred to the animal, and the animal, one animal being sacrificed to God as an atonement a covering for sin, and the other animal, the sin and the guilt, being sent away, meaning that God, in his act of atonement, sends sin away. Exit exit the person. You're forgiven. You're made right with God. See, Jesus did it once. He completed it. His sacrifice was substitutionary, that his atonement for sin was for the sin of his people, as it says in Hebrews 9.28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So that all describing what what it meant for Christ to taste death. 
and I'm, I didn't even, I'm just touching the hem of the garment here when it comes to explaining the depth in which he went through, the suffering in which he went to, and accomplishing the design in which God designed his death. So anybody who comes to Christ in faith can genuinely and forever be saved. That my salvation in Christ is not in question. Or everything he did had to be undone. And that's just not going to happen. So, in landing this this morning, the Son has a solidarity with humanity that he has no, with, with no other creature. Now, let's go back to chapter 2, and as I close, I want you to see this because this becomes really important. Because there is a particular accomplishment that Jesus secures by becoming a man and submitting to suffering and death. And what is it? Look at verse number 10. It says, first of all, for it was fitting for him for whom all things and through whom, whom all things, whom are all things. Now let me just stop there. That, that the son, Jesus Christ, had to under, undergo an infinite humility in order to be in a position to meet the need of undeserving sinners but why was it fitting in verse number 10 it was fitting because the grace that saves hell deserving sinners does not come without a price that justice must be served to a holy god payment cannot simply be overlooked By God's grace, by the grace of God, it was necessary that Jesus fully tasted death for us. Why? Well, look at verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons, where? To glory. And, it says, and to perfect the author of their salvation through Suffering. If you look over to chapter 5 for a moment. In verse number 9 of Hebrews, he says it in a different way here. He says, in having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So it is God who brings us to a complete and a total salvation. By virtue of Jesus' suffering and death, he can achieve the crowning glory for himself and the crowning glory for us. I and you can go to glory by God's grace. That is God's blessing in Christ when I talk about God's grace. God's blessing in Christ toward helpless sinners who only deserve his curse. See, this is the only reason Jesus tastes death death for us. Nothing we could do he could not cause or compel God to love us enough to send his son to die for us. There's nothing we could have done. The only thing we bring to the equation is our own sin. 
So he does this. The design is to bring many sons to glory. That's, where, that's the destination. That's where it's heading. And believe me, this is just the introduction. He's going to unfold this and unpack this truth all through the rest of the book. We're just, we're just touching it now. That all we can do when, we, when we're confronted with these kind of truths is all that we can do is, is to fall on our faces and realize that we are bankrupt before Him in whom we have to do and just receive His grace from His loving hand while at the same time acknowledging to Him that this would not be happening were it not for the fact that Jesus tasted the full bitterness of death that we deserved, that He didn't deserve. So, what does all this mean? Well, the full and final glory which is intended for humanity by God is available and made secure to those only through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be saved. So this is how we're rescued. This is how we answer the question. How then shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We, we escape by going to Christ and receiving his sacrifice on our behalf and believing it by faith, not by sight, by faith. And he, in turn, gives you what he accomplished freely by his grace. Grace means it's free. There's no work involved. There's nothing involved that you have to do. Believe it. And of course, when you genuinely believe it and come to Christ on those grounds, bringing to him all your sin in which he died for and which he paid the just price before the Father, then Jesus invites you to enter glory through his suffering and death. That's the promise we have. That's the encouragement that he's giving the hearers here in this book that we need today. This is what we need. We need to know this. We need to be convinced of it in our heart, and our mind, that this is what God has done. And no one can undo it. And how, when it says a great salvation, to what great extent God went to save us. Realize that? He didn't save angels. He didn't save any other part of creation. He saved sinful ungodly humanity that's who he saves you know what i qualify for that so thank the lord for it amen i qualify that's who that's who i am and so i you come humbly to christ and say lord be merciful to me a sinner save me you know what he does he saves you because that's exactly what he came to do but then to grow in these truths and not to be wavering in them or doubting them. You want to move away from wavering and doubting and be assured of them. Because you have a boldness in your faith that's given to you by God when you're assured of your salvation. Even in the face of death, you can say to death, your clutches, your cold clutches can't hold me because they couldn't hold my Savior Jesus Christ. He broke the power of death and therefore I inherit eternal life because of him So move aside, I'm going to glory. That's how we ought to think.
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the awesomeness of Scripture. Lord, we would never have thought of this. We would never have even considered this. Your word brings it to our mind and to our hearts. And for me, Lord, and I pray for those listening, it thrills me to know that you are a God who cannot lie. And thank you, Lord, for shooting from the hip and not beating around the bush, but telling it to us straight like an arrow in our heart. And I pray, Lord, that your word would definitely pierce us so we stay and remain faithful to you. And Lord, help us to be thinking about these truths on a daily basis, knowing, Lord, that no one could rob us of the salvation that you give us. No one can take it away from us. No one can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. No one could do that. And if God is for me, no one could be against me. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. Let us mull over them this week in our mind. And let us not only be convinced ourselves, but, Lord, I pray the terror of the Lord would move us and compel us by your love also, Lord, to witness to those who don't know this truth, who think that's some kind of religious system or some kind of human philosophy or just, Lord, the ignorance that people have about what happens after death. Remove that, Lord, from them as we bring the gospel of light to them that they too may know that the only way anyone could get saved at any point in human history is through Christ the Son and his death and resurrection. We thank you, Lord, for being our great high priest, for going before the Father and offering yourself as the offering once and forever. We praise you for it, Lord, and we give you worship. Now send us our way, Lord. Make us ready servants of you in the time you've given us and uh, the time we have left on this side of eternity. Help us to be faithful. In Christ I pray. Amen. Let's stand together.